Good morning. It's a beautiful end of May Sunday out there. I'm glad that you came to church this morning. If you want to turn to your Bibles, Acts chapter 17, that's where we'll be continuing on in our study of Acts this morning. Let's pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought sun, you have brought warmth. You bring every blessing that we enjoy, even the, the multitude more that we don't even recognize is a blessing from you. For every breath of life is really a blessing. Lord God, as we look into your word this morning, let us not waste the breath of life that you've given us. Let us understand how you have created us and how you have saved us and redeemed us to live, Lord, through your word this morning. So we can be your ambassadors, that we can be aliens of living and strangers, that we can be your witnesses, that we can be the light in darkness that's prevalent in this world. Lord God, come and teach us this morning through the power of your word, through the power of your presence, your Holy Spirit that's with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1980, country and western star Willie Nelson released one of his signature tunes, On the Road Again, a tune that speaks about a band that's touring on the road. And as we begin Acts chapter 17 this morning, we see that Paul and company appears to be on the road yet again. Since we find them on the move, moving from Philippi, to now Thessalonica. If you remember last week as we concluded Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had this been released from prison in Philippi, or from jail in Philippi, and as they were released, they were asked to leave the city. Something that they did in Acts 16.40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And they departed, Paul and group, Notice that the narrative that Luke is writing here goes back to the third person. Luke is no longer with them as they travel to Thessalonica. This group that consists of Silas and Timothy, no doubt, and, and Paul travels southwest along an important Roman highway of that time towards Thessalonica. And now in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, now when they had passed through and Anopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, there, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Most likely of, on the way to Thessalonica, they stopped one night in the first place, the second night in another place, and the third day they arrived at Thessalonica. Thessalonica being the most important city of Macedonia, as it was its capital city, Upwards of 200,000 people of that, at that time lived there, so you're thinking of the size of a big chunk of Edmonton. It was a major port of that area, and also as well as a commercial center that rivaled only Corinth towards the south. Thessalonica contained predominantly Greek people, 
And even though it was part of the Roman Empire they were, and controlled by Rome, they were a free city. Therefore, they were entitled to have elections, elect those who would lead them based on their own population, both in who was the leadership candidates, but also who could vote. In other words, their leadership wasn't appointed by Rome. They had their own money. They minted their own coin. And they had no Roman garrison within its wall, within her walls. Now Thessalonica, unlike Philippi, contained many Jews. Which is why perhaps Paul and his group made a V-line, lack of better words, to Thessalonica. And didn't spend more than overnight at these other places. But probably most likely why they made a V-line, it was Paul's policy, as we've seen already in the book of Acts, that he went to the major urban areas to minister the gospel to begin with. And then he, when he moved on, those areas where he planted churches would then evangelize, would spread the gospel in their regions. If Paul and company were traveling Alberta, they probably hit Calgary, Edmonton, then Camrose and Red Deer and Messon Hat and allow those areas then to plant churches around. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Don read this already. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, he's writing back to this church in Thessalonica and Acadia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul planted the church here in Thessalonica, and they would go out and evangelize around their area. And we see when this group arrived at this city, they repeated the strategy that they had. If there was a synagogue in that area, in that city, they would go there first. And this is what they do. They go and speak to those in attendance about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 17.2, And when Paul went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. In Luke's reference to Paul ministering at the synagogues for three Sabbath days, three weeks, it gives us the impression that Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica was a short one, three weeks. But from Paul's letters later on, he wrote back to this church of Thessalonica, Thessalonians 1 and 2, we hear something a little bit different, that there was a longer stay here than these three weeks. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, for ye yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but we toiled and labor with, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. If was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in, in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would not, we, we give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Another piece of evidence that his stay here was longer than three weeks, we read in Philippians, uh, another letter that he wrote to a church that he just planted in Philippi, that the church that they just planted before they arrived at uh, Thessalonica, is that this church, early church, young church, sent them aid while they're in Thessalonica. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So with these things in mind, perhaps Paul went in initially and ministered in the local synagogue for three weeks. 
finding both Jews, they're devout Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And then after those three weeks, Paul's ministry went beyond the synagogue into the city, establishing groups and believers and, and things like that. This would explain how Paul received aid or why he needed to receive aid, because a three-week stay would not really need much aid. I think it's important for us to notice, though, and understand that what Paul and the group did in the synagogue when they went there for these three weeks. We are told by Luke that Paul, in verse 2, reasoned with them. Reason, meaning that Paul didn't go in just to argue with them. He didn't go in just to stir up the, the pot, so to speak. He didn't go in to fight with them. He didn't just go in and preach in a one-directional sort of way to them. But according to the Greek wording that Luke uses here, Paul discussed, he deliberated, he caused them to think, to ponder. Paul gave regard to what they had to say, what questions they had, the answers that they communicated, that they reckoned together in conversation. Therefore, the word that Luke uses here to describe how Paul acted with the lost people that he encountered reflects something that we need to be acutely aware of when we witness as well. Paul took his time with these people. That he had meaningful conversation or relationship with them that was two-sided, not one-sided. That Paul just didn't speak you know, might and right is right sort of way. You know, might and right is. If I yell loud enough, I must be right. None of you guys ever do that, right? Paul didn't get frustrated when they didn't get it. Ah, I'm not going to spend any more time with you guys. He didn't give up on these people after his first encounter with them, and I probably would say that Paul didn't take anything they had to say or their lack of understanding. He didn't take it personally. But Paul and company kept going back to these people. Why? To interact with them. To answer their questions. To take part in a two-way relationship and conversation. What does this tell us? That Paul generally cared for these people. More importantly, he had great, great concern for their souls. Therefore, their need of Jesus, because apart from Jesus, their souls were condemned to eternal damnation. There's something else that Luke records that we need to notice before we move on as well. That Paul reasoned with these people not just based on what he thought. Not just based on what his friends thought. Paul didn't draw upon the latest and greatest teaching. But Paul reasoned with these people based on what Scripture alone said. He reasoned with them from the Scripture. Verse 2. Why did Paul do this? Well, he was a highly educated, trained rabbi. He knew the scriptures. He knew they were from God. 
Therefore, they were truth. That compared to what he had and what scripture had, it was far better for him to share what scripture taught and spoke about rather than what he thought and believed. And Paul didn't speak with them of just about anything. He didn't bring up his pet topics. Did Adam have a belly button? Was it really a fish that swallowed Jonah? What did he speak about? He speak about the central thing that Scripture speaks about, therefore the central thing of the faith. He spoke to them about Jesus. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, verse 3, explaining, providing that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus who I, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. See, the foundation of Paul's teaching wasn't the emptiness of human wisdom. Wasn't the emptiness of human knowledge. He didn't speak to them about their extra-biblical traditions that the Jews that he was speaking to so revered. Instead, Paul reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures, the only scriptures they had at their time, the, their Bible, so to speak, to prove his case came from the very source that the Jews themselves so revered. And in doing so, Paul explained and gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, it's true that Luke doesn't record the specifics of Paul's conversations at the synagogue, but from other parts of Paul's ministry, his letters, the sermons that are recorded, he could have took them to the sacrificial systems that the Mosaic Law described and that they prescribed too. He could have appealed to them from Psalm 22 and then Isaiah 53 in order to prove to them that the Messiah, the Christ, when he came to save his people, would have to die doing so. He could have drew them to Psalm 16 in order to tell them that this Messiah, yes, would die, but he would be risen from the dead. That we don't know, but what we do know is that after he taught, after he explained, after he showed the people what the Old Testament prophesied about the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Paul concludes his teaching with the powerful statement, this in verse 3, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior that has been promised for you people. He's the one who fulfilled these prophecies of the Old Testament. This is why Paul and 1 Corinthians talk about Jesus being first, of first importance. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive. Friends, what's first importance in your life? Is it your health? Is it your wealth? Is it your vocation? Is it your stuff? Is it your family? Is it your religion? There's only one thing that should have first importance. Paul goes on and explains why. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is of first importance. Why? 
because if the Messiah did come, if he did die, was resurrected from the grave, and did save us, what could be better than that? For us and for everyone. And then going on in verse 4, Luke begins to record what were the results of Paul's reasoning. What's, what was accomplished through Paul's reasoning with these people with Scripture? Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. They believed that Jesus is the Christ. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That some came to faith. We've seen the similar pattern so far in the book of Acts. The gospels preach. People respond. With that being said, not only some Jews believed, but a greater number of God-fearing Gentiles, devout Greeks, believed. Among these devout Greeks, Luke seems specifically mentions that there was a considerable number of women of high standing that came to faith as well. Why would Luke throw that in? Well, Macedonian women at this time had a well-earned reputation for their independence and their enterprising spirit. They were forced to be reckoned with. Well, Luke mentions why these ladies came to faith to tell how much the gospel made sense to them. That if it could bring ladies like this and men who were the upper echelons of society to their knees in the repentance, then this gospel must be a gospel of power. And not only this, but Luke mentions this because if these are high-standing ladies of society and culture of that city... Who were they most likely married to? The leaders, the bureaucrats, the lawyers, the judges of that city. Luke mentions this to say that the gospel was going to make inroads in Macedonia from the top down. Because if these ladies got a hold of it, it was going to make inroads. And history tells us that there was a church of great, great multitudes planted there. That was the positive response to Paul's reasoning that some Jews came to faith, that God-fearing Gentiles came to faith with a great number of ladies. Luke then moves from the positives to the negatives. Since, because when the gospel is preached, there's eyes of pushback from the forces of darkness. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they form a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And they, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received, had received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Some of the Jews didn't believe. They rejected the new faith. They rejected the new king that Paul spoke of about from Scripture. They became jealous. 
because they felt threatened that they were going to lose their power, they're going to lose their influence that they had. So these jealous, non-believing Jews gathered some of the wicked men, bad character men, from the rabble, the marketplace. And they form a mob. 200,000 people, you would know generally where to go in that town, where you'd find people of bad nature. Just like we probably know in Edmonton, there's places where you can go and find people of bad nature. The Jews went in the marketplace. They formed a mob. They caused a riot. They set the city in an uproar. And they headed to Jason's house. Jason was most likely the, the person who took Paul and company in during their three-plus week stay there. He was presumably one of the Jews who believed in what Paul had said at the synagogue. Uh, one of the reasons we believe this is that Jason is a Greek name that was assumed by many Jews who were originally named Joshua. But to fit into the culture, they would change their name to Jason. If you know of anybody from South Korea, they often change their names when they come to Canada to an English name. Because us English people have a hard time speaking a tonal language. And we usually can't pronounce their names. When I was in immigration, we'd always get like, just find it what name, funny or not funny, but interesting what, why they would cho choose the, the English name that they did when the Koreans came here to Canada. Much the same is going on in Macedonia where the Jews would come, assume a Greek name. Jason, Joshua, is, took Paul and Silas in. And this crowd arrived at Jason's house and not finding Paul and Silas there, they dragged Jason along with some of the other brothers off to the city officials, the authorities, and presented their charges they had, not against Jason, but against Paul and Silas. Much like the charges that were set against Paul and Silas in the Philippi, the charges here were spun for maximum effect, saying that Paul and Silas were just rebel-rousers, their intent to do no good, saying that these men were against Caesar, that they were against the Roman Empire, because they said there was another king. Thankfully, unlike what happened to Philippi, where another set of false accusations caused the crowd to get to a point of utter controlness that even the leaders couldn't contain, the city leaders here at Thessalonica and the people in general did not get stirred up to the point of chaos. They were disturbed, yes, but not out of control. In the end, sensibility prevailed since they recognized that this Jason and the believers that were with Jason were not the <coughs> cause of what was happening in Thessalonica. They were part of the re results. They were part of the consequences. The real people to be Try the real people to be hauled up was Paul and Silas, but they weren't around. So the authorities, the people, did the next best thing. They said, Jason, we want money from you to release you, and you will keep the peace. And if the peace is not kept, kept we'll take your money, we'll keep your money, and we're going to take Jason and his friends and throw them in jail, or worse. Really provoking Jason to find Paul and Silas and says, you know what? think you better leave. And when we go into verse 10 next week, we'll see that's exactly what Paul and Silas did. That they would leave Thessalonica, but they would leave having 
presented the gospel and seen the people come to faith through the gospel. They would leave, and they would leave a church behind. Even though the crowd, crowd's accusation against Paul and company were trumped up in false, they actually did speak some truth in the wrong context, but they spoke truth. In verse 6, there's a phrase, these men who have turned the world upside down. They got these words so right in the wrong context. They spoke the truth about the gospel, even though they didn't know it. For the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire, we have seen gaining speed in Acts 16 and now in Acts 17. And as we know from history, we see the foundation of a movement that has literally shook the history to its core. And this gospel still does today. As Christ's witnesses in this world in 2017, we are called to stir the world upside down even today. With that being said, how can we? We who are still called to take the gospel. What can we learn from this narrative today? Well, five things very quickly. First thing is we need to continue to spread the gospel. You know, Christianity is not a dead religion. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something that only was applicable back then. Back in the time of Paul, back in the time of Luke, back in the time of our parents, back in the time of our grandparents, back in the time when we were parents. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is still as relevant today as it has been for all of eternity. Why? Because it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ people are saved. There's no other gospel, there's no other way that people can be saved. That's why we're called to preach the gospel. We are to preach Jesus because Jesus is the gospel. That he lived, he died, and he rose again. Just those facts alone should propel us and should make people wonder who is Jesus Christ. Because if some man actually did die and actually did rise from the grave, nobody else has ever done that. See, Jesus is not a museum piece. He's the son of God that God of the universe sent to this world to atone for their sin. See, this is what makes Paul's statement in verse 3 as true today as the day he spoke it back then. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. The government's not our Savior. Our bank account's not our Savior. Our job's not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior, and he's everyone's Savior who believes. Therefore, we, like Paul, need to always continue to move this gospel forward in our world. Number two, then, was to do it, we need to have courage. In order to move the gospel forward in our world in 2017, we need to have courage, as was the case with Paul. Still holds true for us today. Paul had just left Philippi. In Philippi, he received a beating. He was bloodied, he was bru bruised. 
it was courageous for him to not only leave Philippi, but then head straight towards Thessalonica, about a hundred mile journey. So he probably never walked it because he, his back was literally torn to shreds. He probably rode a horse and the road that, that they travel on that uh, Roman highway was a cobblestone road. Could you imagine even riding on a horse with a back that had no stitches that every click of the hoof against a cobblestone caused pain and blood? But yet Paul understood that the gospel was worth enough to take to Thessalonica because there's people lost there. And encouraged to get on that horse, not just the first day, but the second day, and on the third day, and then the first week he was there, went to the Sabbath. As was the case with Paul, still holds true for us today. If we're going to reach this world with the gospel, we need to be bold. We need to have courage. Jesus says in John, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus calls believers to be and his disciples to be, have, be courageous in going into this world. Now, does that mean we are called to have courage in a haphazard way? Ah! And run into a wall? No. We need to be courageous and carry the proper content into this world if we're going to shake the world. The proper content is the gospel. If we're ever going to have the right message to shake the world, we, which we do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't do with boldness, we really kind of render the gospel useless. Useless for the lost, useless for us saints. The example that Paul offers us here, and many examples throughout history, is an example they proclaim the truth of who Jesus is with great boldness. And for that, the world has ever been changed. See, if we don't have the right content and have courage, that's just dangerous. If we have the right content but never have courage, that is equally as dangerous. How many of us lack courage in presenting the gospel? How many of us never present the gospel because we don't want to offend or we don't want to be offend it? How many of us have protected ourselves being offended, offended and only presented a lopsided idea of what the gospel is? that we focus on what Christ has to offer the sinner in terms of living life, improving life now and eternally. How many of us never declare to a non-believer that they're a sinner and that they need a holy God what's to offer them as a sacrifice to pay for their sins? How many of us ever understand that why Christ died for us, not to make our life better, but to pay for our sin? How many of us have ever repented? How many of us have ever have called somebody to repent? See, when we fall into unbalanced approaches of evangelism that fall into no support of, that have no support in Scripture, we're not sharing the gospel. Because the true gospel message will offend. Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
The rock is the gospel. The gospel is offensive for those who are perishing. And whoever believes in him, Paul goes on, will not be put to shame. Now, the gospel is offensive. Do we have to be offensive? Number three, we need to contend. If we're going to turn this world upside down for the gospel, we must contend. Contend as Paul did at the synagogue. He was there for three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from Scripture. We contend with people not by arguing with them, not by judging them, not by how, not being offensive in how we act, how we think, how we talk with them. Both in the positive and negative. We just don't love upon people. If love is the only end of what we're trying to love for. If we're loving on people for the sake of the gospel, we're trying to open up an avenue in their heart to share their need for Jesus. So, how do we contend? We reason through engagement. Mean that we give our time, we give our energy, we give our strength to the loss. We also contend by knowing what we're contending for. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand Jesus. We need to understand why God sent him. We need to understand why we needed Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, and what Jesus can do for anyone who believes. Why do we need to understand? Well, when we, need, we understand, then we can help people understand the gospel. See, witnessing multiple means we share the gospel. Witnessing is not, you know, when we get the meal and we pay for the bill, we put a track in for the waitress or waiter. And we run back, it's like, I witnessed, I witnessed. I saw that happen at the restaurant one. The waitress went like this, she swore and threw it away. See, witnessing for Jesus takes time. It's dirty, it's sticky, it's messy. Because the lost are dirty, sticky, and messy. And most of the time, the saints are as well. And when we witness, we share the gospel. We don't share our own thoughts. We don't share the thoughts of others. We don't share from a position of superior knowledge. Our biases, our prejudices, our, our pet projects. We are called to contend with Jesus. Because if Adam had a belly button, it's not going to make an eternal sense to somebody apart from Jesus Christ. Remember in Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Fourthly, as we've seen in this passage today, as we've seen in the previous passages, and we'll see in passages ahead of us in the book of Acts, we need to navigate through conflict wisely. Because there will be conflict when the gospel is shared. The forces of light and darkness come together, that's conflict. Fireworks will and do happen when we share the gospel. 
because the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing because it tells them they need a sinner, that they're not God, and they'll fight tooth and nail and tooth and nail. Actually, the enemy that controls them will fight tooth and nail to keep what he has claimed. As we've seen in the book of Acts, maybe we like, the, like Paul and navigate through conflict wisely by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Paul stays and gets the living snot beat out of him. Sometimes he goes. He goes in the major centers, plants a church, and when the pressure gets too much, he withdraws because he recognizes his time's not come yet to really push the issue. He did these things, if you notice in the book of Acts so far, he's never done anything to protect his own skin. He's actually lost a lot of skin along the way. But Paul has navigated through conflict wisely for the sake of the gospel. And finally, in our witnessing, in our endeavor to move the gospel forward, the fifth thing then, it means we must see converts. We must see converts if we're witnessing for the sake of Christ. Because the proof of a true, authentic witness of Christ is converts. Is it not? Isn't that what the Great Commission says? Go and make disciples. A disciple is a converted, born-again believer in Jesus Christ who's passionately following Jesus in his world. If I bring you a seed and say it's a fruit tree, what's the proof of that seed is going to be a fruit tree to you? Because David says so? No, Don's going to take it back home, plant it, where Adele says to put it. He's going to water it, he's going to fertilize it, he's going to take care of it. And when it produces fruit, he's going to say, it's a fruit tree. If we are authentically witnessing for Jesus Christ, we will see converts. That is the Great Commission promise. That is Acts chapter 1-8 promise. See, we are to make disciples, not just to share love, not just to have great potlucks, or not through, not just to even great Sunday morning services. That doesn't prove that we've witnessed properly. What proves that we witness properly is we see converts, both collectively and individually. Now that's probably, that, that's ruffling my feathers. But when I look at my life as a believer, how many converts have I seen? How about you? Have you seen converts through your witness? I'm asking you individually and collectively. We have a whole history in this world and a whole book of Acts that talks about the early church. When they preached Christ, people were saved. Now, there's nothing wrong with the message. I hope we understand that. The message does not to be de 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 changed. But perhaps our methods do. How many of you just went, oh, he's making me mad. How many converts have you seen in your witness? How many converts have we seen through our church's ministries? Either something's wrong with the method or something's wrong with the message. Now, I think that Jesus did come. I think he did die. I really believe that he did raise, rise from the grave. 
So in David's Tonner's life, then something must be wrong with my method. Because if somebody really did come, really did die, really did rise from the grave, that is a message that people will hear. Is it not? That is the message that I really believe it will force me to go tell people that it's true in any way that I can. See, a lot of us are like that waitress or that person, aren't we? We, we slip the witness in very subtly. I did okay. I witnessed for Christ. But we never examine the results and be truthful to ourselves. Doesn't mean that we're going to see a witness or a convert the next time we witness. Just like a baseball player never hits every ball. But if I'm on a 0 for 29 hit streak, I'm going to change my batting. Are we going to try new methods with the timeless message of Jesus Christ in order to reach this world that is changing and is growing, growing more dark? And with each convert, we see that the gospel does indeed turn this world upside down as it has through history. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this message of the gospel. Thank you so much that you've given us to us to reach those who are perishing. Give us boldness, give us courage, help us to even answer those doubts that we have ourselves about it. And then propel us to be effective, authentic witnesses of you in this world. And never, ever, ever give up trying to proclaim Jesus. We pray this in his holy and precious and saving name. Amen.